Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rosecast. Today, Dr. Rose chats with Alice McGinley, the founder and executive director of HUGS. HUGS is an organization that helps individuals who are dealing with the trauma of loss from suicide and stands for healing and understanding of grief from suicide. Listen as Alice shares her story of how she dealt with the traumatic loss of her own son to suicide and how she turned that trauma and that pain into an organization that now helps others heal. Thanks for joining in. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rosecast. This is Dr. Sarah Rose. Today, I have as my guest Alice McKinley. Alice is the founder as well as the executive director of a group called HUGS, which is a support group for families and people who have lost someone to suicide. Welcome to the show, Alice. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Well, let's jump into this and find out how did you, what's your life story? How did you come to be the executive director of a suicide support group? Well, so Alice, uh, tell me where you and your husband and your son, where did you all move from? Um, We moved from the suburbs of Chicago. Our son was starting high school. Our middle daughter was starting college, so it was a good transition time. Our oldest daughter was already married and living in St. Louis. Well, that is a huge move from Chicago to Charlotte. So what tempted you to come to Charlotte? My husband got a job offer he couldn't refuse. Oh, well, that's the best. You know, we can't refuse those, can we? We moved to Charlotte in 1999. In 2001, um, our 16-year-old son took his life. Um, we, it was very unexpected. He had been in a, a car accident where he sustained a traumatic brain injury in August of 90. And he had also had several sports-related concussions from playing hockey and football. At the time, I don't think the research was out yet about the connection between um, concussions and traumatic brain injuries and suicide. And seven months into Danny's healing, um, he took his life. But his behavior leading up to that point had been different, but I wasn't overly concerned about it. What behavior did you notice that was different with your son? You, you mentioned that you noticed he was different. Um, Danny was left with very short-term memory loss um, and Ill- inability to concentrate for more than about 15 minutes. He had a lot of trouble sleeping. Um, sometimes when I would watch him play hockey, towards the end of this seven months, um, he would go to hit the puck and he would miss it. And so we knew, the doctors had told us it would take 12 months. For him to heal. For his brain to heal. Yeah. And so what happened then? Well, when we look at suicide, 
there is a cup analogy that we use. Um, if you look at a cup that's full to the top and you put a couple of extra drops in the cup and the cup overflows, I guess in the beginning we were looking at what were those last couple of drops. Um, I do think that Danny's cup was full. He had to have tutors after school. He had to have somebody else take his notes in class. And this was a pretty independent kid. So he had quite a bit of, of uh, memory loss from the injuries. He did. Um, and at the time, we did not have the information either that concussions are cumulative and that the brain trauma does not heal in 48 hours. And or two I don't weeks. think a lot of people realize that, that they're cumulative. I don't think so either. Um, you know, we w we're told the standard, watch him for 48 hours. If he knows his name, the date, who the president is, exactly. he's good to go. Yes. And we know now that that's not so. Um, so on the day that Danny took his life, we had been in Chicago um, visiting with friends over St. Patrick's Day weekend. And we had left a car in Chicago um, at my parents' house so we would have a vehicle when we were in town. And we had told Danny when he got his driver's license that he could have that car. So we were coming back from Chicago. Um, he was so excited about the car and, and driving it all the way, even through the mountains by himself. Um, and he got up the next day and went to school and was excited. Um, but when he was in Chicago, he and one of his friends were breaking some rules. Um, and we confronted him when he came home from school. I had sent his friends home that came home with him. Um, and we sat him down and talked to him. And I, I believe we were being good parents. Um, Did he realize that he had broken the rules? Yes. Um, but he was just a 16-year-old. Right, right. Yeah. And it was a 16-year-old type of yeah. rule. It was a bump in the road. It wasn't sure. a life changer. Absolutely. Um, and, and I had just said to him, you know, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep you safe. And I said, what were you thinking? And he said, you know what, Mom, I don't know what I was thinking. I knew it was wrong. So we got past that. Brian asked him to go upstairs and, and write down what he thought about what he did and, and come back down. So Brian, that was your husband? My yes. husband, Brian, yes. Um, well, after a little while, Danny didn't come down, but it was not unusual for him to fall asleep after school because his brain was tired. Yes. Um, he did not come down, and I thought, well, I might as well go to the store and get groceries for dinner. Not really thinking much about, you know, what, what was delaying his coming back downstairs. It would probably never even enter your mind. It did not. But, but about 40 minutes into this, my stomach started to hurt. And when we lived in um, Illinois... My husband wore a firearm to work, and I f 
just felt like something was off, and I went to him and I said, where are the guns that you used to wear when you worked in downtown? And he said, they're still in a box in my closet marked books. I never opened them. And I just looked at him and I said, are you sure? And he looked at me and said, I'm positive. Why are you asking me this? And I said, because I don't want to be a victim and I don't want to be the mother of a victim. Right. And he looked at me and he said, that's never going to happen. But you had different feelings. My gut was telling me something was wrong. So I went upstairs. Danny wasn't asleep in his bedroom, but off to the right side of his bedroom is a door into a walk-in attic. And the door was open, and I walked in, and he was hanging from the rafters. That must have been a terrible shock for you, indescribable. I think the, the brain's ability to be in denial, I just thought, if I walk out of this room when I come back in, he, this is not what I'm going to see. I turned around, and then I turned back around, and I screamed. I could hear Brian coming up the stairs. He knew exactly what to do. We took him down. Brian started CPR, and in my mind, I thought, okay, this is going to be okay. Brian's going to fix this, and Danny will be mad because we're now all going to counseling. Well, it was great that your husband knew how to do CPR. I guess that was part of his profession. It, it was. He had to be certified. Um, he also knew to lift the weight off of Danny's neck. Um, and if I had been there alone, I wouldn't have been able to do that. But um, the paramedics came. They worked on him for about 40 minutes. They said, we have a slight heart rhythm. We're going to transport him. And we only lived three or four minutes from the hospital. By the time we parked and got in, um, the doctor looked up and said, we have shocked his heart several times, and we can't get it started. We can keep trying, but I have to tell you, he will have massive brain damage if we bring him back. That was really not what you wanted to hear. No, no, it wasn't. And I stood over him, and I thought, how did we start this day excited about showing his friends his car and driving to school and end up here? I just could not. I felt like I was taking a walk in somebody else's nightmare. It was surreal. I knew that it would be my voice that would tell my girls that their brother was gone, it, it was, it's really the worst thing I've ever been through. And how did your husband handle it? Because everybody's different. You know, we were very different. He could not call his family. He just was in shock. Um, we because both, if he called them, it was real. It was, yeah, it was real. Um And I was so surprised when we were on the way home from the hospital and um, he said to me, we have to communicate, we have to communicate. And that's 
that's not what my husband's all about. So <laughs> Yeah, he was hurting badly. He, he was, and he wanted to make sure that our family remained intact. Um, and it, it was the beginning of a roller coaster ride that I cannot even describe. It is something I wasn't prepared for. Um, the ups and the downs and how long it took to feel like my feet were back on the ground um, and that I could move forward, it took about two years. So everything was just surreal. It really was. Um, I would wait for him to come through the door after school. The dogs would be by the door waiting for him. Um, and I was, I did do some, I was my son's mom, and I carried him and gave birth to him. And, and Brian has a different kind of grief. Um, he would cry to and from work. Um, when I would drive to see either of my girls or go back to Chicago to see my dad, most of that road time was crying. Um, and one day, Brian was cleaning out the garage, and I opened the door, and he had Danny's football in his hand, and he was just kind of rolling it in his hand. And he looked up at me, and he said, I have no one to throw this to. And I thought, oh, my God. And I understood then how deep his pain was and his need to feel that he was here to protect our family from anything awful like this and that he felt a sense of responsibility for not seeing this coming. So you think he blamed himself? I, I think he did. Um, I did. I did not feel guilty. I did not carry guilt, I don't think, the way Brian did. Um, I felt I was being a good parent on that day. You know, but it went back to moving from where Danny had been for six, 15 years. And how long had you all been in Charlotte when this happened? Only about 18 months. So really a short period of time. Yeah. And we knew hockey parents and football parents. We didn't really yeah. had we hadn't established a whole social You support. hadn't had time. No. So I'm... I had been a substance abuse counselor for many years, and I just thought, I, I can't go back there. Something has to change. I went back for more training um, after two years. I waited two years. I went back for more training and decided that Charlotte needed something for people who lost someone to suicide. And so hugs came about, and, and after doing counseling it, and, you know, thank God for Kinder Morn. If we hadn't had them, I don't know how I would have gotten through this. Um, and tell our listeners what Kinder Morn is. Kinder Morn um, is a counseling center here in Charlotte for families who have lost a child and for children who have lost a parent or a grandparent or a sibling. And they just 
folded us up in their arms and led us health, you know, in a healthy way through our grief. Um, and I think it was so unfortunate that you hadn't had time to make friends socially. It it really it really was. And I said, "What are we going to do? We don't know anybody here." But I have to tell you that um, God put me right where I needed to be if I was going to lose a child because Danny's parents at the at Charlotte Catholic, um, parents from the hockey team and the football team, they came and and helped hold us up. Yeah, they embraced you during these first days. Yeah. Um, I am very fortunate in that we have stayed connected to Danny's friends, both in Illinois and in Charlotte. They come on his birthday every year. They have not missed one year. And we spend the day with them. We do a balloon release. They are now in their 30s, bringing their spouses and girlfriends and children. Um, It is a little bit bittersweet, but... I'm telling you, they love us in his absence, and he did pick great people to be friends with. That's absolutely amazing. Now, how long has Danny been gone? Um, This March, it was 17 years. So all those years, his friends have come back? Every single year. Well, I know that's something that you really value. I certainly do. They... They have been amazing. And it helps them as well as you. It does. In fact, one year I decided not to do the balloons because there was too many. And one of, the, the, um, one of Danny's friends said, this is Danny's birthday. This is what we do. I never excluded the balloons again after that. <laughs> <laughs> he needed that. He needed yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So... After you saw there was a need for a suicide support group, then what happened? Well, I talked to Brian about it. I said, this is what I would like to do. Um, If it's going to be too painful for you, um, I'll reconsider. And he said, well, what I'd like to do is be a volunteer fireman. And I said, go for it. So I was trying to come up with an acronym. Um, In Chicago, there is a survivor of suicide support group called LOSS, which is Loving Outreach to Suicide Survivors. And I thought, well, I need an acronym. So I was playing with words, and Brian just came up to me, and he said, I got one. He said, you could use the acronym HUGS. And it was an acronym for Healing and Understanding of Grief from Suicide. And I thought, that's perfect. That's exactly what it is. Hugs, big hugs. It, it is. And so myself and another counselor started to do a group two times a month. Um, she was just starting her family, and I was at the opposite end of that spectrum. And who attended the group? Anyone who had lost someone to suicide. And we had talked about marketing, but I have to tell you, word of mouth was all... It's invaluable. It took. Um, and pretty soon, we, I have never walked in to do the group where the room was empty. So uh, how often do you do the group? 
We have a general group that we do the second and fourth Thursdays of the month from 7 to 9 in the evening. And just recently, I started a parent-grandparent group that meets um, two Saturdays a month from 10 to 12. So do you have a core group that has started with you years ago and (coughs) continues to come, or do you usually find it's after a period of time people don't need to come anymore? That's exactly what happens. Um, I always feel like when people get to that point where they're coming only every other time or once a a month or once every couple of months, um, then they're ready. They're ready to let go. They are. Um, Their life will never be the same. No, it won't. They will carry this grief forever, but they've learned how to carry it. And I think the ability to talk about their loss in a circle with people who have similar loss is invaluable. I totally agree with you because everyone knows they've walked that path. So they truly understand. Exactly. So do you find people heal quicker if they have a good support system, a good social support system, a friend? I think they do. Um, One of the problems that many people talk about is their friends are sick of hearing about it. Um, And... And unless you've walked this journey, it's hard to imagine that this becomes all-consuming. Um, so it a, consumes every minute of your day. Every thought that you have, just about. Um, and the guilt must be overwhelming. I guess you would blame yourself. It is. It can be overwhelming. Um, I do try to instill in people the belief that no person takes their life for just one reason. Um, and that if we had the power to cause someone to take their life, we would also have that same power um, to save them. But we are not inside somebody's head. And clearly, um, it is more in their head that we don't understand that brings them to this option. Um, We did not know about brain injuries. I did try to put the pieces together of what was in Danny's cup afterwards, and I I have some of it, but I don't always think that it's about wanting to die. I think that in many cases, it's about people trying many other ways to get their life situated And it just hasn't worked. And I think it's more about wanting to be out of pain. In our case, it was Danny was in a situation, and it was about not wanting to make any more mistakes. And his, I think in his suicide note, um, he felt that he had become a burden with these brain injuries. And... That was just his perception. It was his perception, and we didn't feel like it was a burden. Of course not. It was his perception, and he felt that he did not want us to go through any more of his mistakes. And again, I say things are a bump in the road at that point in someone's life. 
Um, I think nobody was more surprised than Dan that he wasn't around for the next school day. So it, it, for us, it was more that he wanted, it was impulsive, that he wanted to be out of the situation. And so doing this did take him out of the situation on an immediate basis. But when I hear his friends talk about that empty desk in the classroom, right. it just breaks my heart. Yeah. So he just got tired, and he didn't want to be a burden. I think he did. And I would say that with the brain injuries, he was more impulsive than you would think. Um, High-risk behavior, football and hockey. Um, but I think it's more about wanting to be out of pain than it is about wanting to be dead. And we know that in kids, they don't necessarily make that connection between taking their life and not being here anymore. Well, I think you said the impulsivity and just wanting it now, but not realizing the full consequences. Right. So can you give any advice to parents? You know, I guess I would... I would say be involved in your child's life. Talk to them. Um, Danny and I had a pretty open relationship, and still I didn't see this coming. But, um, you know, there have been people who said, you're a counselor, how could you not see this coming? And, and I just feel like if, if you do your best to be in your child's life, I understand that the teen years, their family that they see is their friends. Um, But to have those quiet talks with them and to ask them how they're feeling. The other thing I would say, if you see your child is struggling, that you ask them, have they ever thought about harming themselves or taking their life? we used to think that that was not a good thing to say because we don't want to give them the idea. But I can tell you that talking about it with them can make a big difference. And I found this when I went into the high schools to do prevention programs. And for a kid to come up to me and say, I almost took my life this past weekend. Or I, during the football game, I was thinking I would take my life. It, they are already thinking about it. And do you hear that a lot more nowadays than you used to? I think we do. Um, I feel like there's been a little bit of a shift concerning suicide in that we're talking about it publicly. We're, um, we're doing prevention programs across the board for all ages. And I feel that um, some of the stigma has shed, not all of it, um, but enough that we can, we can now be educated about preventing it. You talked about the new strides in medicine. Can you mention some of that with brain injuries? Well, I think that with... Um, the football and hockey players who have had to 
traumatic brain injury and in our military, I feel like that sped up the research some so that we would know what to do for these people when they started to exhibit symptoms and the anger, um, the likelihood that suicide is on the table for them, processing what they have been through, I think it's taken us to a new level of intervention um, that's not just dependent on medication, that there are ways that we can help people with traumatic brain injury that we didn't have at our hands 18 years ago. And I'm, I'm thankful that we have it now. But it's amazing how I can talk to somebody and know now when I, I wouldn't have known that before. So do you highly suggest counseling? I do. Um, and for those who balk at counseling, you know, I would say, I don't care what you do, but don't ignore this. I think animals have played a huge part in the healing process um, for many of them. I also think there has to be a sense of acceptance about limitations in your life that happen after a traumatic brain injury. So tell us how they use animals to help a person with a brain injury. Well, especially dogs, um, and they are trained therapy dogs. It is amazing to me what a difference it can make in a in somebody with a traumatic brain injury it's almost like they get their self-confidence back. This dog is there unconditionally for them, um, and the dog is trained to know when something's going to peak. It, I just find it amazing when you, you see the dogs interact with the people on a level that other human beings can't interact with that person. Um, the horses, I think horses have been therapeutic for years and years. If somebody can get on a horse, they can love a horse. And it, I think that also has been a big step for many people. And it's part of a normal life. That they can do something else new to them um, without thinking about what they can't process anymore and feeling self-pity. And so with someone who had that level of brain injury, how would they get in touch with an organization to have dog therapy or horse therapy? Um, I do think the military has a program. Um, and here in Charlotte, um, the Veterans Home will, um, will help people returning from active duty or transitioning out of service to civilian life. Um, is that who determines whether uh, animal therapy would be advantageous for a person? I think they can be helpful in that process. I do think that you go through a program, if you Google um, therapy dogs, it takes some time to train a therapy dog. Yes. The person who's going to get the dog needs to be available for that. Um, so it's, it's a process. It is a process, 
Um, I don't think it's inexpensive. It's yeah. There's some money involved in it. Um, but where you can go to get funding for that would be an an interesting. <laughs> Even for me, it would be an interesting yeah. endeavor to find where the funding is to help people. But I'm I'm fairly sure um, the military would know that. For football players and hockey players, I would hope that they have the means to do to get trained with a a therapy dog. Yes. Do you work with? Uh people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who... Anybody over 18. Okay. So it's helpful. It's helpful for anybody. Absolutely. So kind of what's the, what's the age range that, range that mostly you work with? I would say um, from 30 to 65, maybe. I've had some um, older... But I would say that's about average. So it's a it's a big can happen to anybody. It it can happen to anybody. And people have said to me, you know, you guys were such hand hands on parents. If it could happen to you, it could happen to anybody. Um, yet we weren't helicopter parents. <laughs> you sound like you were absolutely wonderful parents. Well, thank it just you. Happened. It does. It does. Um, and, and I would say, you know, I thought that I was a good person before we lost Dan, but the journey this has taken me on has made me a better person. Um, and for each story that I've heard over the years, my heart breaks for those people. Um, but I feel like I can help them reframe their lives so that they find meaning again. Do you do individual counseling also? You know, we do. Um, we didn't in the beginning. We would do early response visits, and people were coming to my home or I was going to their home, and it wasn't really a very good situation. Um, at a time when I thought, you know, maybe it's time for me to back out, um, I had contact with the doctor that I had for years, and he had opened up a new practice. Somebody did a fundraiser for hugs. He offered me office space at a reasonable price, and because of the fundraiser, I could afford it. And I just thought, well, the universe is telling me it's not time to hang up my my counseling career. So it I, fell into place. I said <laughs> it did fall into place. Um, and I have a wonderful co-facilitator who is my program director, um, Deborah Shoemate, and she has been a blessing in so many ways. So for anyone who needs Alice's services, Alice, please share with us where they would be. What's the procedure that you would go through to contact you? Okay, um, you would call us at 704 541-9011. I ask that people call before they come to group. I do a quick screening on the phone to make sure that they're ready for group um, and they are not thinking about taking their own lives. Um, 
our Thursday night group meets at St. Stephen United Methodist Church on Sardis Road. Our Saturday morning group meets at our office in Charlotte. And is there a cost for your services? Anything that people receive from Hogs is free of charge. So whether it's individual or group, I just want people to be able to come. And I was determined that something positive would come out of our loss, and I wasn't going to make money off of it. <laughs> well, something positive has definitely come out of your loss because you help others thank walk you, the road. You're there to walk beside them. So thank you, Alice, for sharing about this incredible group that you have founded and you're available to help people now. So any of our listeners that feel like they need Alice's services, please get in contact with her. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Sarah. Do you have questions or comments about today's episode? Dr. Rose would love to hear from you. Please email her at sarah at drsarahrose.com. That's S-A-R-A at dr. S-A-R-A-R-O-S-E dot com. Dr. Sarah Rose has her Ph.D. in psychology. In her role as a counselor, Dr. Rose's objective is supporting and empowering individuals to live healthier, happier lives. She is a licensed professional counselor and national board certified counselor who currently lives in Charlotte, North Carolina where she operates in private practice. Join us next time as Dr. Rose dives into more exciting topics in the field of wellness and mental health. Next time on RoseCast.